0: Good morning, Chats, once again. Our Bible reading is taken from Matthew chapter 27, verse 16 down to verse 20. Matthew chapter 27, verse 16 down to 20. Verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some dubbed it. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I ask all the men to come up. For your Bibles this morning, I'd like to
1: invite you to Revelation chapter 4. We did our scripture reading from Matthew 28, but we'll be taking our text this morning from Revelation chapter 4 and 5. And I plan to jump straight into the text this morning. Uh, We will be in the book of Revelation for these two chapters. Revelation is a book that is filled with a lot of symbolism. I do not plan to address the symbolism in the passage. However, I would like for us to definitely have a look at the picture that is seen there. The picture is simply one that should be awe-inspiring. Another word is awesome we will have a glimpse this morning of the glory of god and that is a glimpse that should be sobering at its core so i want to warn you the glory of god is far beyond our comprehension and so i've been praying this week and this morning And I hope that you will join me in praying this same prayer. Like Moses prayed, Lord, show us your glory. So I'm going to pray. After I pray, we'll dive into the passage. And I'll ask you to pray with me. God, would you let me see your glory? Heavenly Father, we come together as your people this morning. And as we come into this passage, I pray that you would open our minds to see just a glimpse of your glory. Oh, no man can see you and live. God, if we could just get a glimpse, Moses got an opportunity to see your backside and it made his face to shine in such a way that people could not look upon him. It impacted his life as we spend time looking at your glory today, what little bit of glimpse that John could describe, I pray that you would help us to have our lives impacted by the glory of God. And so I pray again, Lord, this morning, show us your glory. For it's in your beautiful name I ask it. Amen. Let's read from Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1. I'll make comment as we go. After this I looked, John speaking, and behold... There are three beholds in this passage. This is the first one. Behold. A door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was as it were a trumpet talking with me. I think this is going to be epic, because when a trumpet talks, you better be paying attention. And it said, Come up hither, I'll show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, second, behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. I'll note that in this passage, the word throne shows up 17 times. So this entire passage is about the throne, and more specifically, about He who sits upon the throne. Verse 3. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. It's a very bright red. And there was a rainbow round about the throne and in sight like unto an emerald. That's a bright green. I see words that describe red, green, rainbow. I think John's having a hard time describing this. Verse 4. round about the throne were four and twenty seats, and upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting. Notice they're sitting. There will be a progression through this passage. They're clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. They must be important elders. I will not go into symbolism and try to figure out who they are. That's not the point of the passage. Watch this, verse 5. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. This has got to be the most magnificent throne room you've ever imagined. With colors that you can't describe and a crystal floor that shines like glass. In the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. And the first beast was like a lion, and the second beast like a calf, and the third beast had a face as a man, and the fourth beast was like a flying eagle, and the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come." It seems that these are the same beings that are described in Ezekiel chapter 10 as having six wings and they rest not. And it says that in Ezekiel chapter 10, it says that when they moved their wings, it was as if the voice of the Almighty was heard. Verse 9, And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to Him that sat on the throne who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders that were sitting fall down before Him that sat on the throne and worship Him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne. Isaiah described this same Seen in the moments when he was caught up in a vision to see God. This was Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1. Isaiah says it like this In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. You hear the word train in Isaiah's words, don't think a train that you might see in the movies today, like choo choo train. It's not what he's talking about. He says the train filled the temple. I want you to think of a train like the regal royal robes, the edges of the robes, or in a modern wedding, you might see a lady wearing a wedding dress coming down the aisle, and the robe that comes off the back of the wedding dress is called the train, and here is God Almighty sitting on His throne in heaven. Isaiah describes it as these beings flying about Him. With two wings they fly, with two wings they cover their eyes, and with two wings they cover their feet. And they cry, Holy, Holy, Holy. In Isaiah chapter 6 it says that smoke filled the temple, and as they spoke, the pillars of the temple shook, and the holiness of God Filled the temple. I hope you're getting a glimpse of the glory of God this morning. They, verse 9, those beasts gave glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne. And when they did that, the four and twenty elders, verse 10, slipped down off of their chairs to bow before Him. The four and twenty elders fell down before Him that sat on the throne and worshipped Him that lives forever and ever. And they cast their, throne, cast their crowns before the throne. And they said, verse 11, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are, are and were created. So their entire statement in this picture, you have these beasts with a face like a man and a lion and an eagle. You have these 24 elders that have now slipped off of their chairs to now bow before the one who sits upon the throne. And they say, thou art worthy to receive. And they give three things, glory and honor and power. You're worthy, they said. You're worthy to receive glory and honor and power. Why? Why do they receive these things? And the answer is there in verse 11. Why do they give the glory and honor and power? It's because thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure were all things created. Why is he worthy? We'll see it several times in the passage today, why he's worthy of glory and honor and power. But the first one is in verse 11, it's because He created all things. And I want you to grasp this picture this morning. He's high and He's lifted up and He's worthy of all praise because of His almighty creative power. He created, the old Latin phrase was ex nihilo, out of nothing. Now I want you to think about what it takes to create out of nothing. Because when you build a house, you build with wood. Or when you bake a scone, you use flour. Eventually you will run out of wood or you will run out of flour. He never runs out of nothing. There's an infinite supply of nothing in the world from which He can create He creates out of nothing, and He will never be held back by resources. He's the one who holds all things together by the word of His power, and with His words, He created light. He said, let there be light, and there was light. You try that. I can't pay the power company to put the lights on. He creates with the word of His power. He separated the land from the sea and He told the sea, this is your boundary and you don't go beyond it. And aren't you thankful for those of us that live along the coast, aren't you thankful that He placed a boundary and He said, you don't go beyond that sea. He formed man from the dust of the ground. He brought man into the shape of a human being in his own image and he breathed into man the breath of life and in man and all of his technological scientific advancements has never been able to do that again only God can breathe the breath of life into man and make him a living soul and with one as it were afterthought he spread these stars into their far-flung distances the book of Genesis says as an afterthought, and he made the stars also. And I don't know if you've ever sat and thought about why would he make the stars. The only reason I can come up with is so that he can show you how massively awesome he is. For mankind, for the last several thousand years, has done their best to map out the stars. And the only thing that we can do when we map out the stars is we find out that there's more of them out there than we could ever count. And mankind, in current scientific astronomical studies, thinks that perhaps we've mapped out as much as 4% of the entire universe. He's a great, big, awe-inspiring God. Notice the words that he said in verse 11. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things. and For Thy pleasure they are and were created. He's an awe-inspiring God. That's the first thing I want you to grasp this morning. The glory of God is worthy of all praise. The glory of God is worthy of all praise. If the four elders, uh, 24 elders and four beasts, who are the closest beings to the throne of God, say with truth, You are worthy because you are the Creator, He is then worthy. They are the ones who are the closest, they know the best. The glory of the Lord is worthy of all praise. I think that we, in our 2023 version of Christianity, I think that sometimes we have a tendency to say words but not really think about what they mean. The word worthy. I don't know if you've thought about that word worthy with God. Maybe you've said it, but I wonder if you've thought about it. The word worthy means it belongs to you. You live up to it. It's yours. And so when we say He's worthy of glory and honor and power, it's His because He's lived up to it. He deserves it. It's our responsibility to give it to Him. So glory goes to Him. Honor goes to Him. Power goes to Him. He owns it. It belongs to Him. He has created all things. You and I included. He has created us. And I want you to think for just a moment as the best example of creation that we have within society. I think the best example we have is an artist or a sculptor. An artist will take, and sometimes an artist might take months to paint out a full painting. Something that exists only in his mind. And he will take that and he will work that out on a canvas. And never in the history of mankind has a piece of art ever stood up to rebel against the one who created it. Never. You know why? Because the Creator is always in charge. And yet, you and I, as human beings in the history of mankind, we have rebelled against our Creator. I want you to grasp how deep this runs for us. For Romans chapter 1 and verse 18 tells us, gives us a glimpse of the wrath of God upon our sins. Here it is, Romans 1 and verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Friend, we have sinned against a holy God. He created us. He created us so that we would return glory to Him. And yet, we as fallen sinful humans have rebelled against Him who created us, and His wrath abides upon our sin. Let that sink into us. You cannot absorb the wrath of God. It's impossible. His wrath is infinite. He created us in His holiness, and He created us for His holiness. And we are to return that glory back to Him. And yet, we have fallen in our sins. And do you understand that in our sin, we are separated from Him, abiding under His wrath. And if something doesn't happen, we will be eternally punished and it will be His grace that He will not just extinguish us. Therefore, we need, we need Him to step in. And that's what He did. Romans chapter 3 and verse 24 tells us that God set forth Jesus to be a propitiation for our sins. The gift that turns away His wrath. That's the word propitiation. God put Jesus to be the gift to Himself that turns away His own wrath. His wrath abides on us, and yet God sent Jesus to take that wrath. God set forth Jesus to be a propitiation, but that happens through faith in His blood. You have to trust Jesus. He is just. God is just. He will always mete out punishment. He will always mete out punishment. And if you put your trust in the Lord Jesus, He meets out that punishment on Jesus instead of putting it on you. But friend, hear me well with a caution this morning. If you don't put your trust in Jesus, that wrath still abides upon you. We quote the verse so often, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. He, God, has made Him, Jesus, to be sin for us. Who knew no sin. That we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. That's the great exchange, and this is the Gospel, friend. God put Jesus forth. You see, He is worthy of all praise because He created us. But we, as His creation, rebelled against Him, and we deserve the wrath of God. And yet, He placed His wrath upon Jesus, and Jesus took our place on the cross. When we say Jesus died for our sins, that's what we mean. Jesus took the wrath of God on the cross. An infinite God poured out His infinite wrath on His infinite Son in a space of three hours on the cross. And Jesus said the words, Tetelestai, it is finished. There is no more work that must be done. Jesus took it. And all we have to do is trust in Him. That's a glorious thought in the Gospel this morning. Jesus makes a statement in John chapter 3, And I hope you'll listen to these words. This is John 3 and verse 36. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Do you hear those words? Jesus Himself said it. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved from the wrath of God don't believe on Jesus, you're still stuck under the wrath of God. And that's what brings us into chapter 5. You're in Revelation chapter 5, in verse number 1. There's a dilemma now in this throne room setting. And here's the dilemma. It's in chapter 5 and verse 1. I saw in the right hand of Him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the back side, sealed With seven seals. It's time. This is future. What he's writing is prophetic. It will happen. I don't know if it will happen soon or in a thousand years from now. I don't know. But it will happen. It's prophetic. Every prophecy ever written in Scripture always comes true. This one is yet to be fulfilled. And here's what he says, the one who sits upon the throne has in his right hand a book sealed with seven seals. I won't take the time to fully develop what this is, but I'll give you a glimpse of it. In chapter 6, it tells us, we won't read chapter 6 today, but it tells us what the first six seals are. If you've watched movies over the last 30 years, you'd be very familiar with these seals. They are the black horse, the red horse, the pale horse. These are apocalyptic judgments. So it's easy for us to see from chapter 6 that the book that is in the right hand of Him who sits upon the throne is the wrath of God being unleashed upon man. Again, I repeat, it will happen. Don't think that the Bible is fiction, friends. God did not waste His time telling us children's stories. These words carry weight. There's a dilemma. Verse 2, And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I, John, I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. So why? I want to ask a question. Why open the book? Because if the book is the wrath of God, why even open it? It seems to you and me in our sterile environments of 2023 it seems to me that it would just be best to leave the book closed but friend I submit to you this morning that there are wrongs in this world and those wrongs must be made right that's called justice justice must be made right upon this earth and this strong angel of verse 2 stands within heaven and cries with a loud voice Who is worthy to open this book? And there's not a single person in heaven that can be found. Not an angel, not a man. There's no one who can be found to open the book and to unloose the seals thereof. And it says in verse 4, John wept. And I think that that helps us to understand why this book must be opened. You see, John is broken over this. He says, I wept much because there was nobody that was found worthy to open the book. This should be causing all kinds of questions in your mind right now. Why unleash the wrath of God? And John weeps much. Historians tell us that by the time John writes this, he's almost 90 years old. John has seen many horrors in his day. I'll give you some insights. John had many sons in the faith. And John had watched those sons in the faith be martyred. John's own brother, James, the son of Zebedee, Acts chapter 12, killed by the hand of King Herod, that's John's brother. You remember James and John, the sons of thunder? When they were young, 35, James was put to death. Not because of something he had done, but the book of Acts records it, so that Herod could please a group of people. Senseless. The wrongs of this world must be made right. By the time John's writing this, he's now on his third emperor of Rome, and the ones that he has endured are Nero and Titus and Domitian, and church history tells us all three of them were bloodthirsty for Christians' lives. And John stands in the throne room, having been transported prophetically to the final day. And he looks and there in the right hand of the one who sits upon the throne is the wrath of God sealed up with seven seals. It will be unleashed and nobody can unleash it. And John is broken. All the wrongs in the world must be made right. This must be put right. And as I think of our community and our society today, I can't help but think of all of the wrongs that you might have been through. You see, friend, God places His wrath in two places. Either He places it on Jesus at the cross, or He places it on the perpetrator who needs to have justice brought on His life. I think about in our society the way that the vulnerable are treated. An accident happens and a crowd rushes in, not to help but to loot. I think of the way that young ladies endure the prying hands of perverted men within our society. I've walked among the crowds and I've heard the nasty things that are said to our young women. Justice must be made right. I think about the way that rich men continue to line their pockets through underhanded dealings behind closed doors, only so they can build bigger barns and far flung places so far away from where the medicine should have been in the hospital and the school books should have been distributed to the students. I look at schools across our nation without basics of electricity and water, and some of them don't even have toilets. There are wrongs in this world. And they must be made right. I submit to you that there's coming a day when he will make them right. 2023, and there are children on the streets and nations all across this world. In Eastern Europe this morning, an invading army marches. And in the Middle East, terrorists hide behind women and children. There are wrongs in this world, and they must be made right. John feels this deeply. Adam in the garden had no idea how far his sin would reach. Oh, friend, sin will complicate life. John's there, and he hears the cry of verse 2. Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? Why? Why do those seals need to be loosed? They need to be loosed because the glory of God is not being praised. That's what's at the core of our sin, friend. We're not praising God for His glory. We're not lifting Him up. We're hiding behind our own sin. And God goes, no, wait, it must be made right. And friend, if you have put your trust in Jesus, it was made right on the cross. And if you've not put your trust in Jesus, the wrath of God abides upon you still. And that brings me to the second thing. The first one you saw was the glory of the Lord is worthy of all praise. And the second is this, the glory of the Lord is being neglected globally right now. The glory of the Lord is being neglected, overlooked, not cared for, globally. You might have seen it in the cover title at the beginning this morning. The glory of the Lord is the reason for missions. Why is it that we take the gospel to the nations? Because the glory of the Lord is not being praised around the world. I look across the nations. I'll give you a few examples this morning. The Maldives, well known for being a tropical resort, vacation, holiday. And yet, within the Maldives, the population shows 99.41% Muslim. The remaining... Half a percent is Buddhist. It's estimated that there might be as many as 200 Christians in the entire nation. The last known missionary attempt in the Maldives was in 1998 when 50 Maldivians were suspected of being Christians. They were tortured and imprisoned. 19 foreigners were deported in that moment. The glory of God today is being neglected in the Maldives. Mauritania on the western coast of Africa, 4.7 million people. Listen to the percentage, Muslim. 99.84% Muslim. Every people group in Mauritania is classified as least reached. That means that there is no church among them, and there is no known movement of anyone trying to take the gospel within the nation to the people. 4.7 million people who know nothing of the awesome glory of God and the work of Jesus on the cross for them. Probably, currently, the hardest place to be a Christian on the planet would be Afghanistan. 42.1 million people currently under the rule of the Taliban. The Taliban announced last year that there are no Christians left in Afghanistan. That was from their own public announcement. It is known, however, that there are many Christians, perhaps as many as 15,000 Christians in Afghanistan, all of them in hiding, none of them meeting together for fear of their own lives. Right now, according to Joshua Project, and if you're not familiar with Joshua Project, I would encourage you to go and search their website. All the details of all the peoples on the planet are listed there joshuaproject.net. According to the Joshua Project, there are 293 frontier unreached people groups left on the planet. That means that that's less than 0.1% of their people group, their language, less than 0.1% of them are professing believers, and there is no known movement towards Christ among them. If you total up their population, 293 people groups, there are 1.6 billion people. That's 19.7% of the global population. One out of five people on the planet live within those frontier people groups. One out of five. That's why I say the glory of the Lord is neglected globally. One out of five. And if we're honest this morning, there are many things in our lives that compete for the glory of God. We'll come for a church service, and if I'm honest this morning, it'll take us three songs before we fully engage with our hearts to sing. By the fourth song, we're there. But on the first song, our minds are in other places. Oh, the glory of the Lord is tragically neglected. God created us for His glory, and the greatest injustice in all of The universe is for us as His creation to not give Him the glory that is due to Him. Colossians 1 and verse 16 places Jesus Christ in the creative position of the Godhead. By Him were all things made, and by Him all things consist. He is before all things. Oh, hear the words of the Lord. He created us so that we would give Him glory. And the question arises, in verse number 2 of Revelation 5, who is worthy to open the book? And here's John crying. Nobody. Nobody is worthy. There's not a single one. Now look into verse 5, and the dilemma is going to be handled. Verse number 5. One of the elders said unto me, Weep not. Behold. There's the third behold. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. I love how this elder does this to John. One of the elders, that was the 24, right? And so one of them sees John, and I don't know, the Bible doesn't say what posture. Is he just standing there crying? But I think that if he says he's weeping, I can almost see him fetal position on the ground just crying oh god you've got to make this right things in heaven are wonderful but things on the planet earth are not and i can just imagine as one of the 24 elders steps away from the throne and comes over and puts his hand upon john 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 john, john it's not hopeless look and listen is how he describes it in verse 5. Weep not, behold, look, you can see him. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the root of David. He has prevailed to open the book and he can open the seals. So look, and I I want to just point out for a moment, look, He's, he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's a fulfillment, a prophetic fulfillment of Genesis 49 and verse 10 that says the scepter will not depart out of the tribe of Judah. And then the root of David, that's a fulfillment of Isaiah 11 and verse 1. The branch shall grow from the root of David. And you and I who live in a society that knows agriculture, we know that you can cut a tree down, but that's not going to be the end of the tree. And that's what happened when Nebuchadnezzar came to Israel. Nebuchadnezzar cut the tree of David down carried them all off into captivity. But a root of David sprung up. That's Jesus. He sprung up. And I love the way that here he looks. The elder says, look upon the throne. There is the lion of the tribe of Judah with power. Look at him. With life, the root of David is there. Now look and John sees. But I want to tell you, I'll just go ahead and tell you this. John doesn't see lion or root. Look what John sees. Verse 6, And I beheld, I looked, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, complete power and vision, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. I think this is an amazing juxtaposition that's a big word it's amazing different way of seeing it on the one side the angel sees from a heavenly view he sees a lion and he sees a root but from the view of the redeemed from the view of john he sees a lamb It's the same one. He's not seeing three different things. He's seeing the same one. It's Jesus at the right hand of the Father. And the angel says, look at him. He's the lion. He rules. And John looks at him. I see a lamb. And notice the words that are there in the verse. He's a lamb that has been slain. I don't know if you've ever been around lambs. Years ago in Kodidanga, we had sheep. And I always look forward to having the lambs because the lambs are like, they're like puppy dogs. Lambs are so fun to be around. They run, they play, they come back to you. The sheep are dumb and want to leave you alone. But the lambs are so nice. And I can just imagine, can I put a lamb in the scene? Throne room? Red, green, rainbow, sea of glass? Slain lamb. That'll turn your stomach. A slain lamb with his neck cut. But it's not just a slain lamb. See the words that are there. Verse six. I beheld and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain. You know what slain lambs don't do? They st- they don't stand. Here is the Lamb of God, John's words. The Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God has been slain, but now he's not laying there lifeless. He's standing. He's standing and what is he doing in this moment? He's taking the the seven sealed book from the hand of Almighty God. You know what this picture is? This picture is, He has already taken the wrath of God upon Himself. He has every right to unleash the wrath of God on those who do not trust in Him. That's the picture. And He will unleash the fury of God's wrath. But first, He receives the glory. For the one who went to the cross has already absorbed the wrath of God, and He has every right to unleash that wrath on all those who do not trust in Him. That brings me to my third point. The glory of the Lord should be praised by those that are redeemed by the sacrifice of the Lamb. That's us. Let me say it again. It's a lot of words. I want them to sink in. The glory of the Lord should be most praised by those redeemed by the sacrifice of the Lamb. So let's continue the picture. Verse 8. And when He had taken the book, that's the Lamb did that. When He had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. So Those 24 guys have been worshiping the Almighty Triune Godhead on the throne, and now they're going to switch their focus. Verse 9, And they sung a new song, saying, Thou, Jesus, art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for Thou wast slain, And hast redeemed us to God by Thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. I don't remember. I don't know if you remember this from earlier, but it was the four beasts that started the praising, and that spilled over onto the twenty-four elders, and now the twenty-four elders are praising, and they're praising not just He who sits on the throne, but they they are praising the Lamb who is standing next to the throne. And now it's going to spill over onto some other people who were there. Those are the angels, verse 11. And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders. And the number of them was, don't try to count them, 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. That's a bunch of angels that are worshiping now. Saying with a loud voice, worthy, you deserve it. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. To receive power and riches and wisdom and glory, honor and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And there's going to be some others in heaven on that day. That's how I know it's prophetic. There's going to be some others on that day, and we haven't talked about them yet in this passage. That's us, the believers that will be there, the believers in Jesus. And you're going to see them in verse 13. And every creature which is in heaven, and on the earth, and under the earth, and such as are in the sea, and all that are in them, heard I saying, blessing, and honor, and glory, and power, be unto him that sits upon the throne, and upon the Lamb forever and ever. And the four four beasts said, Amen. It's almost as if the beasts realized, we started this, and it went a lot further than us. I can see the four beasts started, the elders joined in, the angels hopped on, then all of us join in as well, and then the beasts step back and they go, yeah, that's right, amen to all of that. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped Him that liveth forever and ever. So as I look through this passage, Jesus Christ, chapter 4 and verse 11, in His triune being, is worthy of all praise for His creative power. And then in chapter 5 and verse 9, in His position as a standing slain Lamb, He is worthy to unleash the wrath of God because He went to the cross and He took the wrath of God upon Himself. And then in chapter 5 and verse 12, in His position as the exalted Savior, He is worthy of all power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing because He will sit on the throne forever and ever. He is worthy. And I submit to you this morning that if He is worthy in eternity, He's worthy now. If He's worthy in eternity, He's worthy now. That slain lamb has given us a commission brothers and sisters you see the glory of God is the reason that we do missions we don't do missions primarily because there are poor people that need our help we don't do missions so that when we go we'll get our names put in the history books We don't do missions for any personal gain or for any gain of the people that we go to. We go primarily because His glory needs to be magnified around the world. And there are many places where it is not being magnified, including right here in our own Port Moresby, Papua New Guinea. He is worthy for eternity, and He's worthy now. And He's given us a commission And hear the words of His commission. It was in our Scripture reading this morning. Jesus came, this is Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. Jesus came and spoke to them, His disciples, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. I hear an echo, He is worthy. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, here's a promise, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. I wonder this morning if you think that he's worthy of serving. I wonder if you think that he's worthy of following. I wonder if you think that he's worthy of living right. I wonder if he's... Worthy of your praise this morning. I hope that you've had a glimpse of the glory of God. I can't describe beings that are filled with eyes. John tried. But we've had a glimpse of His glory this morning, and I hope that it will cause you to realize that His glory is worthy of our praise. I'll close with a story that you might know or you might have heard before. In the 1700s, there was a group of believers in Europe. They were known as the Moravians. To this day, the Moravians are still a denomination. They do ministry work around the world. Back in the 1700s, there was a slave that had run away from the West Indies, some islands to the south of the United States, what is now the United States was a slave there from a sugar cane plantation, and he'd run back to Europe. He'd escaped, and he told the plight of the people that he lived among. At that time, on that island, there were 3,000 slaves, and there was not a single believer among them. The only way that was known to make it to that island was to sell oneself as a slave to get there. The average person would think that this is insanity, but someone that has had a glimpse of the glory of God would know that there are no links to which we will not go in order to get the gospel to people who do not know of the glory of God. Two men volunteered to be sold into slavery. Their names are Johann Leonard Dobert and David Nishman. They volunteered to be sold as slaves. To their knowledge, go to this island, live as slaves for the rest of their days. And if God would see fit, they would share the gospel with those 3,000 people that lived on that island. In a weird turn of events, there was a law that prohibited Europeans from being sold as slaves. I'll not touch that. Instead, a Dutch princess hired a British ship to be chartered to take those two men to that island in the West Indies. In case you think that that might have been some kind of holiday cruise, I'll just give you an insight of what was to come. In the next few years, 29 Moravian missionaries went to the islands that are now known as St. Thomas and St. Croix. And out of those 29 Moravian missionaries, 20 of them died in their first few years there. Most of them packed a coffin as their suitcase. These two men boarded the ship and they knew that the road ahead would not be easy. They had no idea what was to come, but they knew one thing. The glory of the Lord is to be praised. They locked arms as they boarded that ship. They locked arms and said goodbye to family and friends And as the ship pulled away from port, one of them yelled back to those believers that were on the shore in Copenhagen. It's unknown which one of them said this, but it became a battle cry for the Moravians. And this is what he yelled across the sea to his friends. He shouted, May the lamb who was slain receive the reward of his suffering." May the Lamb who was slain receive the reward of His suffering. That's why we do missions. Because He's worthy. He deserves it. He went to the cross for our sins. He created us for His glory. He deserves it. And so come what may, It may be difficult times. It may be sickness. It may be being deserted by family. Oh, friend, know that you're not the first and you won't be the last. For He is worthy of all praise. Our Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that You would stir within us a desire to proclaim the glory of the Lord. Proclaim that glory to the nations. 293 frontier people groups making up one in five population on the earth. They don't know the glory of God. They know how to worship, they don't know what they're worshiping. God, I pray that we would see the glory of God as being worthy. Of our own lives, would we not hold back from taking the Gospel? God, there are people even within our society that sometimes we might be ashamed to speak up to. God, I pray that we would see You as worthy as we tell them about Your goodness. Oh sure, there might be fear, God. There might be fear that I'll be look down upon or I'll be made fun of. But the truth of the matter is, if I don't speak up, they won't know about Your glory. And so God, I pray that You would do a work. I pray, Lord, that You would raise up from among us people who would say, I'm ready to give my life if it's like a Moravian to carry the Gospel across the seas. I'm willing to give of a term break. I'm willing to give of my finances. I'm ready to take the gospel where they don't know about you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do a work within our hearts. Don't let us just sit off to the side, unstirred, uncaring about the glory of God. For, Lord, the day will come when we will stand before you. And Lord, I look forward to that day of being able to cast any crown that you have given me to present it back to you, cause your glory to be even greater. For in your beautiful name I ask it. Amen.